Blog Talk Radio. K-I-R-P When you're looking for real truth, real talk radio, make sure you log on to KIRPRadioshow.com. Sunday nights live, 8 p.m. with your host. Rocco P. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for listening to the KIRP Radio Show. Pudgy Miller is kind enough to let me host once a month, last Sundays with Rocco P. Uh, the last show I did was actually earlier this month. It was Sunday, September 6th. I did that uh, really before the anniversary of 9-11. I ended that show uh, somewhat abruptly. If you check out the archives, please do so. And also please check out my webpage, Paradishift, P-A-R-A-D-S-H-I-F-T, S-H-I-F-T dot net, Paradishift dot net. They'll, you'll, you will see an article at the top. It's an article that I did in conjunction with this show, why we should never forget 9/11. Why we should never get, why we should never forget 9/11. Tonight, I don't want to redo that show, but I do want to touch on certain points and then introduce some new information. Certain things I didn't, uh, I didn't really discuss the last time I did the show. 9/11. Uh, 9/11. Why? Why do we even talk about it now? Uh, is it is it worth it? What what's the value? Well, the, the value is in understanding what happened because of the colossal changes, negative changes, largely that have occurred in the United States. Nothing, no single event has shaped U.S. foreign policy and U.S. domestic policies more than 9/11. No single event has done so. Some people, uh, you could interpret 9-11 in one sense as a new Pearl Harbor. Okay, Pearl Harbor triggered U.S. involvement openly into World War II. The history then was such that the uh, George Washington's farewell address had warned, uh, warned the American people not to ever be involved in European conflict. He said, don't have... Uh, don't have alliances with other nations. He said trade with them. Uh, and that was really ingrained in the U.S., uh, really U.S. foreign policy. The U.S. had involved militarily at different times, but never in outright in a European conflict. When World War I occurred, there was a lot of propaganda that was used to convince the American people that 
the historical precedent of not being involved in the European conflict, that that should be rejected, and that the U.S. should be involved in what was then known as the Great War, what became known as World War One. And if you do a little research, you'd see the propaganda that was used. A lot of it was developed by a man named Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays, some of his books are still in print, such as the book Propaganda. And in that, Bernays makes it very clear that a small group of people would manipulate the masses as far as you know their tastes, their interests, what they what they do. We see that in a lot of ways. I don't want to go down this rabbit trail, but we see that, for example, with hip hop. To some degree, a lot of rap has been weaponized, and that's not by accident. Yeah, you know, that's used to help undermine people, in particular, to help undermine the uh, you know, blacks in this country. Uh, they want it's an anti-message family, uh, anti-family message that's uh, that's uh, propagated through hip hop by and large. It's not not a positive message. It's not not a message that reinforces family. So we go back to World War One. Bernays came up with certain phrases that were used, slogans, catchy slogans, to get people to get on board with the Great War in America. One was that World War One, which then was called the Great War, that would be the war to end all wars. So in other words, it was sold to the American public that the United States intervened in Europe in World War One, that there would be no more wars that would solve the problem of war. That did not occur since... Less than 40 years later, there was World War II. Another phrase that was used is that it would be the war to keep the world safe for democracy. It would be a war to keep the world safe for democracy. You read the U.S., the federal constitution, you don't see anywhere where the United States has an obligation to keep the world safe for democracy. And of course, the U.S. government is a democratic republic. It's not a democracy. It's not a democracy. It's, it's a republic. Some people have said a uh, a, a democracy is uh, uh, a wolf and a sheep, or t- uh, two sheep and wolves deciding what they're going to have for dinner. <laughs> it doesn't turn out good for the sheep. And a republic would be more akin to uh, two sheep heavily armed with a wolf deciding what they're going to have for dinner. But we have, we've never had democracy in the United States. We have a democratic republic. It's a constitutional republic. So I say all of this because these, these phrases are used, the propaganda was used to catapult the United States into the Great War, into World War I. We get into, after World War I, uh, the U.S. public was still very uh, educated, really. They understood what the Constitution said. Again, the modern concept, modern public schools, modern government schools, really started uh, around that time, full-blown. Yes, there had been community schools, but they were nothing like we see in the modern public school concept. They were radically different. First off, they weren't supported by confiscatory taxation. In other words, they didn't say that there was this uh, mythical collective right to education, so therefore everyone would have to be taxed to pay for schools whether or not they used them. But also what was key then is because it was locally controlled, there wasn't any standardization. The education wasn't standardized. So Bull knew much more about about the history of our nation. They knew much more about history in general. And particularly, they knew about the rule of law. They knew about the federal constitution. So after World War One, the sentiment in the U.S. was uh, when when the calls became, when uh, 
when war started to break out in Europe in World War II, the overwhelming really response to the U.S. public was been there, done that. In other words, we we've already gone down that path. That there was there's really no popular uh, consent. There's no popular uh, impetus. There's no popular support for the U.S. to intervene in World War II. And then lo and behold, uh, Pearl Harbor occurred. Now again. I'm not doing a show about Pearl Harbor. But if you do some research, it has been unearthed. It's not it's not a so-called conspiracy theory. It's true that the United States had broken the code. They knew the codes the Japanese were doing. Uh, they needed a catalyzing event to catapult the U.S. public support behind World War II, and that was Pearl Harbor. The A lot of the modern ships were moved out of Pearl Harbor. They left a lot of the older ships, and... It, it was said the U.S. wanted that attack to occur to then get the public infuriated. So then they would be, they would be, they would uh, support intervention for the United States into the Second World War. I say all that to go to 9/11. We now have an unending war on terror. The uh, the script, the talking points were unveiled early on. In 9/11, right after 9/11, that day I believe we start hearing the news that this is war, that that someone has declared war on the U.S. And initially, the first day, they didn't know who. In a very short period of time, uh, they said they knew who that was. But you back up again to think about the concept of war in general, and particularly within a constitutional context of the U.S. federal constitution. War technically is something that occurs between sovereign nations. Okay, it occurs between sovereign nations. So, in other words, you can only have legitimate war with one sovereign nation, another sovereign nation. One one nation state attacks another, uh, or provokes an attack, but it involves nation states. That's war. This idea of the war on terror uh, has no. It's uh, it's absurd. Uh, it's absurd. You can't declare war on an ideology, and you can't declare war on uh, on a tactic. So whether you define terrorism as an ideology, saying it's it's functional, what's working definition of terrorism. Terrorism is using violence when groups use violence to achieve a political end, to cause terror to to, to achieve political ends. So whether you see it as as uh, an ideology, or whether you see it simply as a tactic, you say, okay, terrorism is a tactic whereby individuals would use violence to then instill terror for for political ends. So whether whether you construe it as you know this idea of terrorism, whether it's it's an ideology or whether it's a tactic, you can't logically declare war on terror. You, you can't declare war on on an ideology. You can't declare war on a a tactic. Uh, some people have said when you look at terror terrorists they'd be comparable to pirates in one sense, pirates, because pirates don't represent state actors. They're independent groups, and then they just use violence. In, uh, in, their, in their case, they use violence to just rob, steal, <laughs> to take things that don't belong to them. They use force. So uh, you can't declare war on piracy. You can't, you can't declare war on piracy as an ideology. You can't, you can't declare war on piracy. As a, as a tactic, so we get to this notion of the war on terror, and a lot of bad things have have occurred 
when you look at that. Uh, the war on terror, because it's not a constitutional war. Okay, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11, only Congress may declare war. Only Congress can declare war. So when you have a war on terror, you have a war that's illegal because Congress could pass all laws they want. They could pass declarations. They don't pass a declaration of war. That's, that, that would be the constitutional way. But you, could, you could pass a resolution or you could fund wars, but that doesn't make them legal because if a law isn't based upon the Constitution, ultimately it's illegal. And that, to me, when I learned that, you know, that was really, in my thinking, that was a paradigm shift, and I realized how, really how moral U.S. policy, U.S. foreign policy has been post-World War II, because war has not been declared. The United States, the sovereign nation, has not declared war since the cessation of hostilities in World War II. In World War II, there were a number of nations the U.S. declared war against, because, again, war legally involves one nation-state declaring war against another. And that's reflected in in our uh, in our federal constitution. It's very clear. Article one, section eight, clause eleven. Only Congress may declare war. They chose those words very carefully. And today, uh, people talk about the president as commander in chief, and that language is in the constitution. However, the president, properly understanding the constitution, the president is only commander in chief during a time of legal declared war. But what's transpired? that after the station, after World War II ended, the U.S. never really stopped fighting. You know, what, what do I mean by that? Okay, you had, you had these, you know, you had victory celebrations in Europe and all. What, what do I mean by that? The infrastructure of war that was constructed post-World War II was never deconstructed, was never taken down. So, in the Constitution, we have, there's authority for a navy, the standing navy. There's now authority for a standing army. Constitution had a system whereby the militia, the states would have militias, and then the federal government could call an army in time in times of war. And they had this what they call a loophole. With uh, every two years, they pass the National Defense Authorization Act, and that's a symbolic gesture where they try and say that they're honoring the Constitution because the Constitution didn't have an outright prohibition against a standing army, but it basically said after the cessation of hostilities, then there'd, there'd be bills to pay. So it gave Congress two years to pay those bills off, and then yeah, that would be it. So after World War II, every two years, there's a uh, you know, we have this idea, we have this military, this defense authorization. So public, as they tried to convince the U.S. public post-World War II that the machinery, the infrastructure of war, that then became permanent was then defense. It wasn't. It was an offense. It wasn't war. So therefore, the the Secretary of War became permanent. As and they said, now well, he's the Secretary of Defense. Joint Chiefs of Staff then became permanent. You look at legislation like the National Security Act passed shortly after World War II, and that was amended. That established permanent Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, that's where we get the CIA. The Central Intelligence Agency has precursor, I believe, with the Operation Strategic Services during World War II. Then that intelligence agency became permanent with the CIA. We had the NSA then in the early 50s. And I, I believe I mentioned before in the show, it's not bad enough only that the NSA is illegally spying 
on the U.S. populace. What's even what's even worse is that it's uh, by law the NSA is led by either a general or an admiral. So it's not bad enough that the U.S. is under surveillance illegally. The U.S. is under military surveillance. So all this infrastructure became permanent post World War II. And what does this have to do with 9/11? Some people. When you look at a document called PNAC, the Project for a New American Century, well, that was an organization, and they uh, they drafted uh, a document. They drafted a white paper called Rebuilding America's Defenses. So this organization, PNAC, the Project for a New American Century, drafted a paper. I think that was done around 1999. It might have been a little bit earlier. But you had prominent neoconservatives. Prominent neoconservatives. And I use that phrase, neoconservative, to talk about distinction between traditional conservatism and neoconservatism. The neoconservatives were pro-war, and they basically said they wanted to reshape the Middle East in that document. They wanted to reshape it. And they would be, uh, they said, well, this really can't be done. We really can't change the map of the Middle East apart from some catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. And then lo and behold, we had 9-11, we had September 11th. So when you understand this language that's used, it's not it's not just a harmless phrase. Even even if you support the war on terror, understand what's being said. It doesn't have it's illogical, there's no constitutional basis, and it's open ended. And historically, what we're seeing, you know, Pudgy and I have discussed the police state on the show. Uh, what we're seeing is the US is being transformed into a domestic police state. Now, they don't have to make an announcement to do that. They just have to continue to pass more laws and you just continue to control the U.S. public in different ways. For example, okay, we have the TSA. Okay, we have the TSA. Uh, so the TSA is in the airports. Okay, but it's transportation in their name. We have a federal agency, no constitutional basis. They create it. It's funded. TSA, Transportation, what is it? Transportation Security Administration or agency, uh, has been used not just in the airports. They've used them uh, after football games. They've been in Charlotte after Panther games. They've been at train stations. They've been at bus stations. So the TSA will continue to expand. After 9-11-2, they rolled out the Department of Homeland Security. And the rationale, the reasoning behind that was this. They tried to convince the American public that 9-11 was just a horrific day. It was really a bad hair day for the entire military uh, security apparatus. So it, was just, it was just a terrible bad hair day for the Pentagon, for every military intelligence agency, for the CIA, for the FBI, for NORAD, for North, uh, North American uh, Air Defense. Because it, was just, it was just a bad hair day for all federal law enforcement and the military, and all military intelligence. So the, the solution was not to hold people accountable in all those agencies. The solution was to hold people accountable in the intelligence agencies. And again, NORAD, I mean, North American Air Defense, what happened on 9-11? How, how was there a systemic failure that you could have four planes hijacked that couldn't be located? Okay, In my opinion, that that was, you know, that was absurd. They tried to say that the hijackers uh, turned off the transponders as if, you know, if Russian jets uh, 
or any 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 country, anyone that had, would have a hostile airplane that they would have a transponder on. So no, I just I do not believe that. But if the response to 9/11 would have been rational, people in those intelligence agencies, people in the Pentagon would have been held accountable. Okay, that that's what would have happened if the response was rational. Instead, no one was arrested. No one, no one was charged with criminal negligence. No one, to the best of my knowledge, even lost their job. Instead, the response of the government was, we need more government. So, so just think about that again, even if you're on board, and you, even if you think about the idea of DHS, which is really uh, internal police, internal federal police, uh, to make it blunt. I mean, that's what we're talking about. We have we have this infrastructure, internal internal federal police that was set up after 9/11. Okay, they they set up this new department that include a lot of other agencies, including uh, uh, INS, Immigration, Naturalization, Border Patrol. They threw it under the auspices of DHS. So they set up this infrastructure. If uh, historically, historically, when a, when a nation fights wars abroad indefinitely, then you get a domestic police state. So now, I mean, post-World War II, the United States never vacated any of those bases. None of the bases in Europe, uh, none of the ba- the bases uh, anywhere were vacated. So they, the U.S. military became permanent. The war continued, though they didn't say they were at a state of war. They said, it's, this is just defense. Uh, you look at what happened with the Korean War, a very dangerous precedent. The United States entered the Korean War again, without a congressional declaration of war. And there was no clear resolution. And it was done under the auspices, it was done under the authority of the United Nations. Uh, Vietnam War occurs. I've talked about the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Now we know, after the fact, that the U.S. largely expanded its presence in Vietnam. I think 58,000 soldiers died over a lie. They said speedboats had attacked a U.S. ship in the Gulf of Tonkin never occurred. But still, that war occurs in Vietnam. 58,000 U.S. servicemen die. Uh, no declaration of war. And there's not a clear resolution. Now, post-9-11, we have a war on terror. The war on terror has no parameters. In other words, there's nothing There's nothing to say uh, when it will stop. So... The U.S. Congress passed, after 9-11, an authorization for the use of military force. Authorization for the use of military force. And that was to uh, fund and justify the invasion and then occupation of Afghanistan. So you think about that now, after, you know, years after the, the emotion of 9-11, years after the shock of the, of the attacks. If the goal, okay, you know, think with me about this, if the goal of the the attack on the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, if the goal was to remove the Taliban from power. Because remember what happened. The Taliban were openly harboring. The government of Afghanistan was openly harboring Osama bin Laden. And what they told the U.S., I, I covered this in the last show earlier this month, they told the U.S. they would surrender Osama bin Laden with evidence. The United States never provided that evidence to this day. That evidence never, has never been provided, but the U.S. went ahead. Congress funded this authorization for use of military force, and the United States force is still there. So if the goal was simply to punish the Taliban, 
remove them from power for harboring Osama bin Laden. That would have been, you think about it, a pretty quick mission to go in, basically, and their and their and their regime and leave. But U.S. forces are still there. Okay, U.S. forces remain there. And then you look into this further, even mainstream news outlets like Fox News have seen, when the Taliban was in power, opium production was at an all-time low in Afghanistan. For the most part, it had grinded to a halt since the U.S., or it was very, very low. I wouldn't, maybe it wasn't completely gone, but it was, it, was, it was very, very minimal. Since the U.S. invasion of, and occupation of Afghanistan, opium production is at an all-time high. Even some mainstream news outlets have reported U.S. troops have protected poppy fields, and they use the excuse saying, "Well, if they, if the U.S. didn't do that, then that would interfere with the culture and people's way of life, as if that has ever been an issue, or caring about their economy." So that begs the question: Who, who gets that money? Where, where does it go? Uh, the CIA has been caught. Uh, there was one CIA charter plane. That that had crashed, uh, had oh I don't know, I don't know how much millions of dollars, maybe billion dollars worth of cocaine. So stuff like this happens. They admit what they're doing, and it doesn't stop. But this is all this all occurs again. This foreign policy occurs due to the war on terror. Then we get back home again. What's happened post 9/11? We have people literally with their hands on us, molesting us in the airports. The TSA has run beta tests again outside airports. They say that they can they can be involved anywhere there's transportation, so bus stations, train stations, and that would leave the door open to TSA. Not just to me, I think it's uh, it's just not constitutional when you have these you have these stop you have checkpoints when someone someone police officers stop you and they need your ID just because you're there. And again, it's irrelevant to me. The Supreme Court said that's okay. The Supreme Court uh, has said abortion is okay. Uh, they've denied the fundamental right to life reflected in the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence talks about life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. You deny someone's life, uh, that violates the Declaration of Independence, violates natural law. And you may know, too, the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott case said slavery was legal because... This was their rationale. This was the Supreme Court's reasoning at the time. Because slaves were property, and you couldn't deprive someone of their property. So you really don't want to take the moral position or the constitutional position. It's not there. The Supreme Court is the final arbiter of reality. Not not the case. Not the case. There's nothing in the Constitution that gives the Supreme Court the right to create law. But this 100-plus years of progressive, or I would say collective education, uh, even Christians, even people that believe the Bible in America largely believe the Supreme Court has this near-mystical power when they make a decision that that creates law. Most recently you saw that with uh, uh, the case, June 26, saying um, they they invented a right to homosexual marriage. The Supreme Court could rule on that, but it would take Congress. Congress would have to change the law. In either case, the Supreme Court had no basis on that. There's nothing about marriage in the federal constitution. They didn't have a right to rule, and Congress has no right to make any laws about marriage. So that would clear up a lot of issues. That would clear up a lot of problems if uh, they just followed the constitution as written. So 
uh, where do we go? Post 9-11, uh, we've seen this narrative of the war on terror. It's open-ended. This authorization for the use of military force was written. It was written in such a way it wasn't just to justify and fund the occupation of Afghanistan. It was written such that anyone, uh, they had broad language saying any affiliated forces of al-Qaeda, any affiliated forces. So you think, how? What does that mean? Well, post 9-11, there's been different white papers. Okay, so Most of them have been public knowledge. Some have been leaked. Uh, like there was one report, MIAC, the uh, Missouri, uh, I think, interagency report, MIAC report. And in that, a patriot leaked it. Someone probably in law enforcement can use a patriot. And a lot of people in law enforcement, we know there is abuse of police power. We know there's abuse. Federal agents abuse their power. We know there's a lot of things, federal agents. There's just, there's just not a basis. I mean, you talk about drug enforcement. It's not there in the Constitution. You talk about the environmental protection. It's not there. But I, I am glad for the people at all levels of law enforcement that are patriots. And a lot of these people are patriots. Okay, There's there's obviously a lot of abuse of power. But there's a lot of good people that, that share this information because, think about it, they know what's going on. They see the criminality when the government does does these things that are immoral and illegal. There's a lot of patriots on the inside, and they give us this information. And then the new media, or the alternative media, runs with it and exposes them. So you, you had this Mayak report that had come out and that said, uh, it talked about these idea of uh, fusion centers. I think we got a few in North Carolina even. And that's the idea of fusing federal, state, and local police. And that's been going on for a long time, but now they're becoming more open. They're more blatant about that, even though it's not constitutional. The, the system we have set up, there should be separate jurisdictions. You have you have a local police department. They don't have jurisdiction outside their town. You have state troopers. They don't have jurisdiction out their state. You get the feds involved, they get involved both openly and kind of covertly. Openly, they get involved through these fusion centers where they openly cooperate with police, and they also get involved behind the scenes just through funding. You know, they bribe a lot of police forces. They give them equipment they don't need. They militarize the police. But post-9-11, this authorization for the use of military force, again, could be used against any affiliated forces with al-Qaeda. So you'd say, why? You know, why would I? Why would I say? Why would I have an issue with that? Well, once again, the whole idea of a war on terror is illegal. You can only declare war uh, per the federal constitution on nation state. There was there was provision Article One, Section Eight, about a letter of Marquis reprisal. That's something, for example, Thomas Jefferson used against Barbary, the Barbary pirates in Africa, where he issued a letter and it was for specific targeted military action. So you say, okay, this is a letter of Marquis reprisal. They're going to go out. The U.S. Navy would go to a particular place, uh, take care of that situation, and so over. And of course, the U.S. government, I mean, that was a brilliant uh, a brilliant provision the founders put in the Constitution, but they don't want that anymore because the people in charge, whether you call them the military-industrial complex, the military-security complex, uh, I would say the New World Order or the shadow government, they don't want to operate within the confines of the Constitution. They want to destroy the rule of law. And they've they've been extremely effective 
doing that through Congress, through just Congress continues to abdicate their responsibility. I mean, just think about the fact they control the power of the purse. And then we have Republicans. We've got Republicans controlling the House of Representatives and the Senate, and they can't even defund Planned Parenthood. Well, it's not that they can't. They won't because the two-party system at the top is a fraud. It's, it's, it's complete theater. It's complete theater. So post 9/11, we have this author. We have this authorization for the use of military force, not just targeting Afghanistan, but any affiliated force with Al Qaeda. I talked about these white papers, this Mayak report. The Mayak report warned of Americans who would vote for third parties, uh, who would vote vote for Chuck Baldwin, Constitutional Party candidate. Uh, he had my vote, and in, uh, in 2004, he had. Uh, they warned about people that would support Ron Paul. And they brought in this use, they brought in the definition of terrorism to uh, affiliate forces. Yes, yes. If you look at all of the domestic legislation post 9 11, it's got virtually nothing to do with people named Mahmoud or Hakim. Uh, it's, aimed, it's aimed at Americans, particularly patriots. It's aimed at people that question the government. And numerous white papers have come up warning warning federal law enforcement and then federal law enforcement trains that you know with uh at uh trained state police and local police they warn them about people that identify with the constitution you talk about the constitution then you'd be considered radicalized or a potential terrorist you carry a pop constitution you'd be considered ra- radicalized or a potential terrorist you oppose abortion you'd be considered radicalized radicalized or a potential terrorist uh, you warn about the federal government about the excesses of the federal government, and then you're considered radicalized or a potential terrorist. You're involved with the second, with uh, the Second Amendment, with uh, groups that support the Second Amendment, and in particular, they've singled out Gun Owners of America, Larry Pratt's group, which is a lot more uh, a lot more hardcore than uh, NRA. You know, we, we've gotten we've gotten a lot of gun control. If you didn't get the memo. Uh, the NRA supported the largest gun control in this nation's history in 1968, the Omnibus Gun Control Act, that was written by the NRA. They they basically deceived their members by saying there's going to be gun control, so let's help craft it. Instead, taking constitutional position, there's no federal authority for any gun laws. Period. So we're going to oppose it. So all this you have you have all these all these white papers. You have the Patriot Act. Patriot Act was rolled out after 9/11. And very few uh, in Congress voted against it. Ron Paul didn't, with the simple for the simple explanation, he didn't have time to read. No one did. So John, you largely wrote that. He was an attorney, Vietnamese American attorney, in the Bush administration. He rolls it out. And there's a lot of gems in the Patriot Act. One of them, one of my favorite provisions I like to discuss is that in the Patriot Act, it it broadens the definition of terrorist. So. As you have post 9/11, as you have all of this information about terrorism that comes out, all these laws against terrorism, uh, it's aimed at the domestic public, it's aimed at Americans, and they broaden it such that uh, if you if you uh, are guilty of a misdemeanor, if you, if you're if you have a misdemeanor on your record, then that makes you a terrorist. It's right there in the Patriot Act. So when you see the infrastructure again, when you see What's rolled out post 9/11? We not only see the endless wars abroad, and Obama's continued what Bush has started. Okay, let's let's face it. You have 
I had mentioned before, you had drone attacks, you had Anwar Al-Lock, a U.S. citizen, and his son, a 16-year-old, killed in separate drone attacks in Yemen based upon secret evidence. When uh, one activist, Luke Radowski, confronted neocon uh, congressman uh, Peter King in, uh, in New York, he's from Long Island, he said, how can you justify the execution by drone of Anwar al Laki's 16-year-old son? And again, this was even, it would have been bad enough if, if he was killed in, in the drone attack that killed his father, but a separate one. And uh, the response by Peter King was, uh, Anwar al Laki had the wrong father. He just had the wrong dad. So this is where we're at to 9-11. All this stuff, all these laws, the Patriot Act, uh, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, numerous Defense Authorization Acts, they do it every two years, but they added stuff like uh, the NDA in 2012. 2012 National Defense Authorization Act said any U.S. citizen anywhere in the world could be arrested and even executed without due process anywhere in the world. And, uh, yeah, this is uh, the Congress passed it and Obama signed it. <laughs> so all this, again, pretty much, we don't have it if it wasn't for 9-11. So what uh, I've said before, there was never any hard evidence presented to the U.S. public that showed that Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda was responsible. Okay, that's uh, and that's an amazing discovery, but that's out there. That's out there for the world to see. If you read... Uh, if you read the article I've posted at paradshift.net, that's P-A-R-A-D-Shift.net, you can see that, that what I posted, why we should never forget 9-11. Uh, I said there's no evidence to prove Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda were responsible. While the U.S. claims that confessions recorded by prisoners at Guantanamo Bay, all those tapes were destroyed. One of the one of the people that brought that to my, to my attention was Paul Craig Roberts. Who was Paul Craig Roberts? Paul Craig Roberts was Assistant Treasury Secretary in the Reagan administration. And he wrote, he basically had wrote, wrote an op-ed when this became public, what happened to the tapes. So the only evidence that they said they had were these tapes confessions by people that were in Guantanamo Bay. And that raises a lot of issues as far as were they tortured to extract those confessions. But the mind-blowing thing is all those tapes were destroyed and no one no one on 9-11 Commission knew that those tapes even existed. So it's not only that they didn't see them, that was hidden by the, by the CIA. Uh, two of the, coach, the two co-chairs of 9-11 Commission, Tom Kane and Lee Hamilton, they went public to say that there was obstruction of justice from the CIA, the 9-11 Commission, for obtaining answers and uh, information they requested. So when you see what we've been told, you come to that you come to that conclusion that it was a it, it's a fraud i mean it's been it's been an incredible cover up and to to stress what i've said already uh if 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 the official story on online was true okay we had if there was the systemic failure of every military intelligence agency of the cia of the fi of the fbi of norad if that did occur then why was no one charged with criminal negligence? No one even lost their job again, to the best of my knowledge. Instead, the result, the response to the government is always more government. And I don't want to get caught up on this analogy, but this is what's happening right now with Obamacare. Okay, 
if uh, if you're a fan of Obamacare, I know some people, it's a relatively small amount of people. Some people are doing well and they're getting subsidies. I understand what's happening. Those subsidies will be reduced or eliminated. And because Obamacare was written by the big uh, big insurance companies, they're going to consolidate their power and cost the premiums will continue to go up. So when Obamacare completely fails, and it is designed to fail, okay, we'll see that if you don't believe me in a few years, when Obamacare completely completely fails, the logical response of the federal government would be, we need less government involvement. Instead, then they will give us a single-payer system. They had that internal debate between uh, Ezekiel Emanuel. Ezekiel Emanuel is a, a medical doctor, brother of Ram Nabul Emanuel. Ram Nabul Emanuel, former uh, former uh, advisor to Obama, former chief of staff, actually, to Obama, now Chicago mayor. And Ram Nabul Emanuel gave us that great line where he verbalized what many have thought in government, never let a good crisis go to waste. So you had a debate, though, between Ezekiel Emanuel and uh, Jonathan Gruber. The Gruber evidence came out. Gruber said, we, the people, were stupid enough. Uh, <laughs> we we could be convinced that Obamacare wasn't a tax, and of course it was. And they knew that in Congress. They knew that. They knew that. Supreme Court, uh, mystically, again, they had no, there's nothing in the Constitution about about uh, about health care. Yet then they said uh, Obamacare could be legal based upon because it's a tax. So, but in any case, I say a lot to say when these things happen, Obamacare is designed to fail. The solution they've prepared is for a single-payer system. People like Ezekiel Emanuel want to get a single-payer system already. They knew that couldn't happen. They had to do it. They had to condition us by giving us Obamacare, which is designed to fail. Okay. In uh, in 9-11, okay, all of this, the entire security apparatus, if you believe the official story, failed. And remember, again, everyone believes, lest you you, uh, you reject me uh, as a conspiracy theorist. Okay, everyone believes that a conspiracy occurred in 9-11. Okay, what do I mean by that? Everyone believes conspiracy. Uh, either the official story is that there was conspiracy that 19 Muslims led by a guy on dialysis, Osama bin Laden, that they planned and executed the most sophisticated and horrific terrorist attack in U.S. history. Four planes hijacked. Okay, three hit their uh, three hit their targets, and then we have that mysterious collapse of the world of World Trade Center Seven, Twin Towers. But I say all this to also to physical evidence. What got me? To to question what happened on 9/11. Okay, there there were a couple there's a couple of things. Uh, one thing one thing caught my attention is I did a little research and I saw a documentary called 9/11 Mysteries Demolitions, and I have that embedded on my article. And in that it talks about how there was clear evidence, okay, irrefutable evidence that there was molten metal found in the twin towers. And in Tower Seven. Now, the math—the math is real easy to follow here. Okay, you have planes; they hit—they hit the skyscrapers, they hit the twin towers. No plane hit seven. Okay, seven collapsed at free fall speed into its own footprint. Forty-seven story tall building does that, but towers were hit by planes. They collapsed within an hour or so. Okay, the uh, the plane that was hit that hit the second tower collapsed before the other one, but it was, it was relatively quick. 
collapsed into a solid footprint. So we were told the official story was it was a pancake collapse and structural failure. You do a little research, you find out that a, uh, a plane had flown into the world, into uh, the Empire State Building. So when the engineers and architects came up with the Twin Towers, they wanted to make it so that it could have withstood multiple direct hits by the biggest jumbo jet they had at the time. <laughs> uh, the big thing, though, to me, that got my attention, got me to think, yeah, have I basically, have I believed something that that is false about 9-11? Uh, it was molten steel. Okay, it was molten steel. Because they found molten steel up two months after 9-11 at the base of the towers. And seven, up to up to a month. Here's one quote. The molten steel was found three, four, and five weeks later when the rubble was being removed. He confirmed that molten steel was also found at, at World Trade Center 7, which mysteriously collapsed in the late afternoon after five. As late as five months after the attacks in February of 2002, firefighter Joe O'Toole saw a steel beam being lifted from deep underground at ground zero, which he says, quote, was dripping from the molten steel. Okay. Why? Why is this? Why is this an issue? Because uh, it, it takes uh, well over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit to melt to melt steel, and that's nowhere near what jet fuel melts at. It's it's nowhere near. The jet fuel could not have ever been responsible for the molten steel that was found at the base of the towers and found at the base of seven. Okay, it was just yeah, it was, it's, it's impossible that that could have explained it. Okay, to quote from one piece, and I'm going to play a video. I'm going to play a video from architects and engineers from 9/11 Truth. You just do a search in AE9 architects and engineers from 9/11 Truth. Richard Gage has done some you know, fabulous work educating people about this, convincing other engineers and architects to look at the evidence, and they've joined his organization. I think they've got over 2,000 architects and engineers that have signed on. Uh, to, to the disorganization asking for a new uh, a new investigation, but you you look at the uh, you look at the numbers again. You look at the simple simple facts. Jet fuel jet fuel is going to burn. Okay, and, and the kerosene that they use in, in the jet plane is going to burn openly in a dirty dirty burn open open fire 500 to 700 degrees Fahrenheit. That's it. And the the, the FEMA report on 9/11 said the jet fuel burned off. A few minutes, okay, and then it caused some office fires. And you see that, and you see that in in the videos that you had the big red ball. So most of the fuel burned right away. And they said it caused secondary fires, okay, office furniture, carpets. So say that's around 560 degrees. The problem with that is that the structural steel of World Trade Center uh, would hold 98% of its strength then at those temperatures, and World Trade Center is built to hold five times its load. Uh, we, we get this idea again. How hot does it have to be to burn steel? Okay, it's got to be got to be around at least 2,000 degrees. Well, okay, 1,800 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit at least. So the official explanation, okay, apart from the fact that we've never seen hard evidence tie that proves Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda did it, it's never it's never been shown to the public. Apart from that, apart from the fact that Tom Kane and Lee Hamilton, the co-chairs of the 9-11 Commission, wrote an op-ed, New York Times, saying that the CIA was guilty of obstruction of justice, and they were chairs of the commission. Apart from that, 
the only hard evidence was tapes of alleged confessions that were destroyed that no one in the 9-11 Commission ever saw knew existed. Apart from that, there's no way jet fuel could have ever caused the steel to melt in the towers and in uh, in World Trade Center 7. I'm gonna play. Uh, I'm gonna play a video. This video is also embedded on my website in that article. But this is from architects and engineers for 9/11 Truth. It says uh, it's from part of a bigger documentary. It says uh, part one: melted steel beams and molten iron. Ex- ex- experts speak out. In its report on World Trade Center 7, which came out in May of 2002, FEMA documents in Appendix C steel that has been melted and even partially evaporated, resembling Swiss cheese. What are we to make of this? This was the size of steel that they used in the construction of Tower 7. They didn't use this particular kind of steel in Towers 1 or Towers 2. So that's why we know its pedigree. It was a surprise uh, to me because it was so eroded and deformed and so um, we took it for analysis in the lab. One section of steel was kept. How it got to be in its present state was described by the New York Times as perhaps the deepest mystery uncovered in the investigation. Those parts where the entire half inch of the beam is, uh, is gone, entirely dissolved right through, and so something happened to cause the steel to really thin and in some places to disappear entirely. Well, it was attacked by uh, what we determined was a liquid slag. When we did the analysis, we actually identified it as a a liquid containing iron, sulfur, and oxygen. I'd like to know why NIST excluded the evidence of melting steel. Why is this not included? Why is this forensic evidence not being included in the report? Okay, this uh, this quote and this uh, this part of the video is from John Gross. Okay, he was an engineer. He was part of NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, was commissioned to investigate the physical evidence of 9/11 as part of the Department of Commerce. So this is what John Gross was saying. Um, I know of absolutely nobody, no eyewitness who said so, nobody who's produced it. Get down below and you'd see molten steel, molten steel running down the channel rails, like you're in a foundry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like lava, like, like it was lava. Lava. a volcano. It actually melted beams where it was molten steel that was being dug out. Underground, it was still so hot that molten metal dripped on the sides of a wall. It's this fused element of of steel, molten steel, and concrete, and all of these things all fused by the heat into one single element. And they pulled out the big block of concrete, and there was a like a little river of steel flowing. Okay, the video then quotes the New York Times, which said steel members appear to have been partially evaporated in extraordinarily high temperatures. And the Times piece also said parts of the I-beam, once five-inch thick, had vaporized. So whatever was used not only melted steel, but had had the temperature to vapor. Okay, 
witnesses, firemen, and lots of people described the flowing molten metal, iron or steel, at extremely hot temperatures. And John Gross categorically denied their observations. So that because their observations don't fit his preconceived notion, he not only ignored evidence, he denied evidence. There were reports of uh, molten steel having been seen in the uh, in the rubble pile of all three buildings, and uh, I knew that jet fuel, uh, which is essentially kerosene, uh, is not uh, capable of melting steel nor iron. Um, kerosene or jet fuel uh, burns. Uh, at less than 1,600 degrees Fahrenheit, and molten steel needs at least uh, 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit uh, in order to uh, melt. In an office fire, you cannot generate enough heat to melt steel, and yet we have evidence of molten iron in the microspheres, in the rubble pile, and the metal pouring out of the side of the tower. I worked as a, uh, uh, in the project engineering department of the casting plant uh, of Elcan, the aluminum company of Canada, one of the largest aluminum smelters on the planet at the time. And uh, in that smelter, we turned aluminum oxide into aluminum, molten aluminum. Molten aluminum is silver. It's not yellow, it's silver. It looks like mercury. The yellow molten metal that I saw pouring out of the South Tower is indicative of molten iron. The official explanation of what happened there was that the heat from the fire supposedly softened the steel and thereby brought the buildings down. Well, second law of thermodynamics says just like water can only flow downhill when it's poured on the ground, Similarly, heat can only move downhill. But with heat, downhill means from a region of higher temperature to a region of lower temperature. And the heat flowing uphill from a 750-degree flame to a 3,000-degree puddle of molten steel violated the second law of thermodynamics. The only way that's known that a carbonaceous material can cause steel or iron oxide to, to be, turn into a molten metal is in a blast furnace. Yeah, and that's very different than what we had. So what is this molten metal? It's a direct evidence for the use of thermite. An incendiary used by the military, thermite is a compound of iron oxide and aluminum, which when ignited sustains an extreme heat reaction, creating molten iron. In just two seconds, Thermite can reach temperatures over 4,500 degrees Fahrenheit, quite enough to liquefy steel. We know that open-air fires cannot burn hot enough to melt steel, but metal had melted at the base of the towers. I found a pore in the steel that, w that had pure sulfur uh, embedded in the pore. 
which I thought was very strange. And um, so that's when I, I really started looking for sulfur in, in, and, and finding it in more abundance in some of these, fa- in some of these phases. There's a government theory that calcium, calcium sulfate from gypsum boards was the source of sulfur, and that's wrong. Uh, calcium sulfate cannot go undergo any kind of a chemical reaction that produces the element sulfur. And we're not dealing with any kind of uh, compound of sulfur. When we're talking about sulfidation, we're dealt, dealing with uh, the element sulfur. There's a version of thermite called thermate, which has uh, sulfur in the thermate. And what the sulfur does is it... Uh, it's sort of like um, salt on ice. And it just basically makes the uh, steel melt at a lower temperature. And if you do a search on Google for uh, thermite and building demolition, you can find devices that have been fabricated uh, and invented that use thermite for building demolitions. In the case of thermite cutting charges, you would have heard far less noise since they are worked by uh, thermal heating, melting of the steel, rather than an explosive cutting as in RDX charges. Overflights had detected uh, with infrared camera 1400 degree Fahrenheit hotspots on the surface uh, of ground zero. And uh, that being there for a week, um, you know, indicates that there was something very hot going on below the surface. So thermite would also explain potentially the fact that the fires could not be put out at ground zero. The fires lasted for quite a while, but um, most importantly, they were deep within the pile where people would expect that the environment was oxygen-starved. And uh, thermite could explain this because it has its own oxidant within. It's actually the uh, metallic oxide that provides the oxidant to allow the uh, incendiary thermite reaction to occur, even underwater. One, uh, one activist friend had told me uh, when he was considering 9/11 is that you go through uh, you go through a couple of phases when you think about it when you present with evidence that really uh, completely contradicts and disproves the official story the official conspiracy theory you first think uh, it can be it can be true uh, in other words obviously the government is covering this up we don't know exactly who is responsible, but there's obviously criminal elements of the government that know about this, that were responsible for it. Not everyone (laughs) knew, but obviously some did to make this happen. And they continue continue to cover up. So one friend said, who's an activist, you really go through three phases when you understand the truth about 9-11. First, you think, well, could this be true, that that it was an inside job, the criminal elements of the government did it. And then you come to the conclusion, uh, yes, that, that that is the truth about 9-11. Um, it had to be an inside job. The, uh, the, the physical evidence shows that there's no way planes would explain the destruction of the towers and World Trade Center 7 collapsing into its own footprint uh, without a plane hitting it, fires, have never caused until 9-11 any steel-structured building to collapse, much less into its own footprint when you see pulverized uh, pulverized concrete and those high temperatures we discussed tonight. 
So that's the second phase. First, you think you're true. Second, you realize it, it is true that 9-11, uh, 9-11 was an inside job. There were criminal elements of the government involved. And then the third, the third uh, thing you come to the conclusion is that it can happen again. It can happen again. And that's why I'm doing this. That's why I talk about this from time to time. That's why I've written a little bit about 9-11 Truth. Because when you realize that, that it did happen, it can happen again. As more people know, it becomes far more difficult for the government to stage another attack like that, which is basically a false flag attack. False flag attack. What's a false flag attack? When we get we get that phrase false flag when uh, one nation would attack another nation, but you would disguise yourself, you would cover yourself, you would clothe yourself in an opposing nation's flag to give the appearance that that nation was attacking you when you were attacking yourself. So 9-11 was a false flag attack. It was a self-inflicted wound. becomes far more difficult for the powers that be to stage another attack. The more the people know that 9-11, the official story, was false, that it was an inside job. Now, that's why why it's important to understand. That's why it's important to discuss. Once again, you look at the evidence that was presented to the American people. Uh, Even the 9-11 Commission never saw solid evidence that that would uh, implicate al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. You had those tapes with alleged confessions at Guantanamo Bay. What were in those tapes? No one knows. 9-11 Commission never saw those tapes, and they were destroyed. And the, the, the two co-chairs, Lenny Hamilton and Tom Kane, basically said that was obstruction of justice by the CIA. Then you look at the physical evidence in New York City. There's no way molten metal, and even higher degree temperature metal that was partially evaporated, that was not the result of furniture fires, uh, secondary fires due to jet fuel. Physically impossible. The towers collapsed into their own footprint, pulverizing tons of concrete. Impossible that that was due to fires. So we have been lied to. What what do you do with this information? Once you understand it, uh, you, you share that with others. And the goal, again, is not to create fear. It's not to create hysteria. It's not to create dread. It's not to paralyze you. It's to empower you to understand the criminal nature of elements of a government and to hopefully prevent this from happening again because the government always uses war to do things they cannot do that in times when we're not at war. But that is one of the horrific uh, things about 9-11. We're, we're involved openly in this unending war and terror. So because there's no parameters, there's no, you can't define what ter- you can't define when is that war over against an ideology. You can't define when that war will ever end against a tactic. It's open-ended. So they will continue unless we stop them, unless we the people are, are organized, unless we the people elect representatives that were on their oath to the Constitution. They will continue to incrementally take our rights away based upon the specter of an attack that they caused. And that is 9-11 Truth. Thank you for listening tonight. Poggi will be back next week. I thank him again for this opportunity to host this show. K-I-R-P Radio!